Monica and I want to again uh, invite you for this Tuesday evening. We're going to share in a little bit more depth about our lives and ministries as missionaries with Frontiers. And I really want to invite you out because we also want to give a progress report about sort of the status of the Great Commission in the Muslim world. And we've got some interesting war stories and reports and love it if you could uh, join us this Tuesday evening over in the fireside room about 7 o'clock. You've no doubt noticed that there are many ironies in the Christian life. That Jesus calls you and I to live sometimes in a way that's completely opposite of our natural inclinations as human beings. Someone has called the kingdom of God the upside-down kingdom. For example, Jesus says that the greatest among you shall be the servant of all. He also said, bless your enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but when somebody becomes my enemy, is opposing me, is maybe insulting me, harm, bringing harm to me or my family, I want to punch their lights out. I don't want to bless them, but Jesus says, bless them. You know, don't take revenge. Don't let anger, you know, you know, sort of simmer in you, but rather bless them and pray for them. And that's hard to do. Uh, Jesus said it is better, more blessed to give than to receive. Well, that sure seems opposite of, of how our, we would normally think about it. I mean, imagine this morning if we put two tables out front after the service. One table said, free $1,000 bills, take one. And the other table said, please give $1,000 for the needy families of Idaho. Uh, but you can't go to both tables, by the way. Uh, which, you know, which line, which table do you think would have the longest line? You know, there's sort of a natural way we, we tend to think in life, but Jesus says no. It's, it's opposite of that. Uh, so let me ask you a question. What's the best way for you to have a good life, a satisfying life, to be happy in life? Well, guess what? It's not by striving to be happy and fulfilled in life. It's strange, but there's some things in life that we don't get, we don't obtain by going after them. Uh, how many here, raise your hand, have had trouble sleeping any time in the last six months or nine months? Raise your hand. I can guarantee you one surefire way of not falling to sleep. Trying to fall asleep. And Jesus says it's sort of the same way with life. Now, this passage, and by the way, please turn with me to Mark chapter 8. This passage contains some of the hard sayings of Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your crosses. Put an end to your life as you know it, basically, and follow after me. So let me tell you, first of all, what this message this morning is not about. I'm not up here to preach about commitment and devotion and and, uh, to lay some heavy burden on you. I know that a missionary up here preaching about devotion and commitment is enough for many to head for the exits. Rather, I believe Jesus' message this morning is a positive one. It's It's a message that should enliven us and encourage us as Jesus calls us into a deeper and closer relationship with him. So let's go through these passages somewhat quickly so we have a bit more time at the end for uh, application. But let me throw out one more disclaimer. Uh, I'm not standing up this morning saying I've got it all together in these matters or I'm committed or anything like that. I'm really struggling with these things uh, still. So we're all sort of pilgrims along the way and let's grapple with these things together this morning because nobody really has it together yet. Let's begin by reading from verse 11. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
and sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they, the the disciples, had forgotten to take bread and did not want or did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? What had happened here was a world-changing event. The whole political and religious leadership of Israel and Jerusalem had sent up this very high-powered delegation to follow Jesus around, and not just to snip at his heels, but to, to confront him. And there, up in the Galilee area, finally they say, we, we ask you for a sign, but they weren't just saying, you know, give us a sign today, we would like a little entertainment, but they're saying, we reject you. The whole of legitimate Jewish leadership in that century had clearly taken up the issue of Jesus, full awareness and deliberation, and rejected him. Not haphazardly, not in a corner. And as Alfred Edersheim, who's a favorite commentary of of David's, Loper's, and and mine as well, says uh, this was the last and decisive question of the Pharisees. He says, in that distant and obscure corner, on the boundary line between Jew and Gentile, had that greatest crisis in the history of the world occurred, which sealed the doom of Israel and in their place substituted the Gentiles as citizens of the kingdom. The end of Israel as a nation, as the covenant people of God, at least temporarily, and the beginning of the church. And Jesus is thinking about this, and as they withdraw from the Pharisees, Jesus is is just deep in his thoughts about his grief over Israel, and all that this means for the, the future of God reaching the nations with his blessings. And and then he turns to the disciples and says, beware. But then why is Jesus so frustrated with the disciples? Did you notice? You know, they're thinking about bread and stuff. And here Jesus is thinking about God's working in the world and where history is going. And they're, they're thinking about lunch. And, I, you know, I can imagine, you know, why, if I were Jesus, I'd be frustrated too. Although I'd probably be more like one of the disciples. And it would be, be funny if it wasn't so tragic. But aren't we sort of like that a lot? You know, Jesus wants us to have our head in, in the work of the Father around us, in people's lives and what he's doing in the nations, and what he's doing in, through history to bring history to a close with his purposes. And all we can think about sometimes are, you know, the latest craze with sunglasses, or a you know, special they're having at Albertsons, or keeping tires in the car, or whatever, and, and God would be frustrated with us. And, and we need to repent of those things and, and ask the Lord, Lord, help me to get my mind into the things that your mind is into. Let's continue down in verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. The opposition against Jesus had crystallized. The stage is set. So what to do? Takes the disciples on a retreat. And goes north of the Galilee area into Caesarea Philippi. Today that's the modern city of Banias. It's in Lebanon, Shigite country, in, in near the lower, lower part of the Bekaa Valley. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? 
And they were saying John the Baptist, others were saying Elijah, others this, others that, maybe one of the prophets. And Jesus was clearly a very controversial figure. Everybody was talking about Jesus in Israel, in the homes, in the coffee shops, on the Ricky Lake show. I mean, this was the most talked about figure of that day. And no wonder the Pharisees felt threatened. And who do people say that I am? And he turns to his disciples in verse 29 and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, Thou art the Christ. Peter representing and voicing the thoughts of all of the disciples and really all of the believers, the thousands of believers at that time, in Thou art the Christ. The distinction between that confession and the leadership of Israel's rejection couldn't be sharper. Thou art the Christ. So Jesus says, That's great. Well, let me also mention, in Matthew, Matthew's account of the same event, Jesus even elaborates, says, that's, that's tremendous. Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. First time, by the way, in Jesus' ministry where the word church is mentioned. First time, in fact, in the New Testament. So Peter's, Israel's rejection of Jesus, Peter's great confession, and then Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Look with me at verse 31. He began to teach them then that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And three days later, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Three tremendous events which then determine and shape the course of redemption for the nations for the next 20 centuries at least. Shape the the dealings of God with man. Not just then, but also today. In America, Europe, Japan, Indonesia, Kazakhstan, South America, every place. Irian Jaya. God's dealing with man would never be the same. So please, you know, never read this passage again as sort of another typical week in the life of Jesus. This is where the course of the world changed course. So what's next? Peter said, great. Well, you're going to go to the cross. We'll miss you. No. (laughs) The disciples were stunned. They were confused. They were in denial. What do you mean you're going to die? I mean, put your mind in the the mind of the, your thoughts in in the mind of the, Disciples, Jesus is not just one foot away from the grave here. He's at the height of his popularity. Hundreds of thousands of people in Israel were following him and ready to swear allegiance to him. And the disciples are starting to say, great, you know, get rid of the Romans, no problem. Move aside the Pharisees. And and Jesus is going to set up that messianic kingdom in Israel prophesied. And guess what? We're going to be right there at the top with him. And, you know, with power comes money and comfort and prestige and, you know, they're sort of looking for the top spots and who's going to be minister of interior and this and that. And, and, and just sort of at this highest confession of Peter's faith comes this deepest thrust of disappointment. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be abused. I'm going to be executed. And Peter says, verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine, man rebuking God. Peter's good faith had turned into arrogance. 
But Jesus then turns and rebukes Peter. Verse 33, turning around, seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. No sterner rebuke had ever fallen on the ear of a Pharisee. He rebukes Peter in the the harshest possible way and says, You're no longer voicing the mind of God, like you were a moment ago, but you're now voicing the mind of the enemy. And, And the Peter plan was Satan's plan. And uh, and Jesus says, you're, you're setting your mind not on God's interest, not God's plan, but, but on man's. Not that God's interests or God's plans are opposed to man's, but man's interests, man's way of thinking are, are so colored by sin and selfish motives and limited insight and lack of spiritual insight. But, you know, imagine if Jesus had not gone to the cross, what would that have meant for you and me? We, we would be lost. So God's interests are lovingly in man's interests, but, but Peter got it wrong. Uh, Jesus says, Peter, you don't just have the facts wrong or the conclusions wrong, but your whole way of thinking is wrong. Peter, you're, you're sort of thinking normally like a human being. You win by winning. You succeed by succeeding. You, you go for it. You go for success. Uh, but, but the way you're thinking, Peter, is diametrically opposed to the way God would do it and the way God is going to do it. So he says in verse 34, and 34 and 35 are really the crux of our passage this morning. He summoned the multitudes with his disciples. Everybody, come over here. Listen up. If anyone wishes to follow after me, to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, or as Matthew says, whoever wishes to find his life will lose it. But whoever wishes to, to, who loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. Ouch. That's kind of rough. Jesus is saying if, we, if we're really serious about following him, and I think we all are this morning, we're here, we want to follow Jesus, we've got to die. We've got to take our lives and a lot of our hopes and our dreams and, and what we want and just sort of say, Jesus, I'm going to put him in the garbage can. For your sake. That's tough. That's not the normal way we would go about life. But Jesus is saying we've got to deny ourselves. My road is Calvary road. My path is suffering and and denial of self and, and death. Not just because it feels good, but in order to accomplish the Father's purposes. To obey Him. And if you want to come my way, that's the way it is. Like master, like servant. And the, and the disciples are stunned by this. And he doesn't just say, well, by the way, here's a little note for those who really want to be tough in the Christian life for extra credit. <laughs> you know, some sort of think that way. You know, we can live normal lives and there are those who go for extra credit. It's not that way. He says, this is for all who want to follow after me. Ooh, that's tough. But he's saying there's got to come a point in the life of every Christian where we reach the conviction that my needs, my wants, Staying in my comfort zone, my career, whatever, has got to come second place to what he wants, what he may want to accomplish through me in the world. And my needs may go wanting. That's okay uh, in order to accomplish what he wants to do and for me to get the benefits of following after him. We've got to take up our crosses. What does it mean to take up your cross? To buy a chain down at Thrifty? Obviously not. The cross... They knew exactly what the cross meant. It meant the end of a person's life. 
And Jesus is saying, not just once, but continual deliberate steps of even putting ourselves in harm's way, suffering and loss and deprivation and pain and even humiliation. If that's what it entails, and it surely will, for following after what he wants me to do. Well, what's the normal way of life? Uh, Well, you only go around once in life, and you go for the gusto, right? You maximize the good things as much as you can, and, and we minimize, you know, try to minimize the bad things that could possibly happen to us and just try to get through this life. And, and even perhaps Christians, many Christians, perhaps even most Christians, they, you know, we go after the best possible career, the nicest home, the best possible family life, uh, the, the best possible future for our kids, season tickets at Bogus Basin and the Boise Hawks, and if you're lucky, Morrison Center, uh, and then add a little bit satisfying church life and religious education for the kids and, and go for life. And Jesus says, no, wrong. He says, we've got to deny ourselves and take up our crosses. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then these things will be added to you. Not necessarily the season tickets, but at least our needs. Seek first the kingdom of God, he says. Give up, let go. Don't necessarily go after the things that are in your immediate best interests. Why? Because you're doing what he wants you to do, not necessarily what is on your agenda. Well, these are, these are tough things. But he says, for what does it profit, verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, what, he doesn't say this could actually happen, but what if you could have the whole world? What if this morning, or after the service, you stumble across a little lantern and you rub it and a genie comes out? And a genie gives you everything. Gives you the money of Bill Gates. The power on this planet of, of the President of the United States, the wild lifestyle of Donald Trump, uh, the looks of Richard Gere or Cindy Crawford, the health forever of, of perfect health and, and the family life of James Dobson even. Uh, and one day Jesus comes along and says, excuse me, i got a task for you, assignment, but it may cost you all this. How are you going to answer let me get back on that, Jesus. Uh, we've got a choice. You know, we can we could turn our back on on the Lord and continue to go for the good things, or we let go, deny ourselves, and follow after Christ unreservedly. And if we're wise, we'll take door number two, because this life is going to end. We can't take anything with you or with me. As the song said, there are, are no hearse with luggage racks. Uh, this life is going to come to an end. So he continues in verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, as sometimes we're tempted to, to be ashamed of, of our association with him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. There's going to come a time when Jesus is coming back with power, And that's not just sort of pie in the sky, but it's really going to happen. It's not fantasy land. It's not theology land. But but Jesus is saying this is reality. It's not just what we can see so far in our own human experience, but there's coming a time when he's coming back. And this life as we know it is over. And this planet is over. And there's going to be a whole new world order. Not the one they talk about now, but a whole new world. And a new world order with that. And uh, so, you know, this is incredible. And he says in verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here 
who will not taste death until they, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In other words, some of you aren't even going to die and you're still going to see the, the power and the reality of the kingdom of God. And what happens next in verses 2 through 8 is sometimes called the Mount of Transfiguration, which is sort of a boring title for one of the most incredible events in human history. Uh, you, you've read that before, right? And we're going to read it in a second, but just absolutely fabulous happening in human history. More extra earthly than anything you've seen on Star Trek. More spooky than anything on X-Files. But matter is changed, and people are brought back from the grave, and people are, are thrust into another dimension of time and space, the dimension where God lives, of his glory. And so let's, let's read about that. Six days later, and by the way, I think the disciples had probably the most depressing week in their entire lives. Can you imagine? You had all these hopes and expectations. Jesus dashes them to the ground. He's going to die. He's going to leave you. And by the way, you're also going to have to suffer the whole rest of your life for his sake. See you later. You know, I mean, imagine that week. You know, the, the depression that they must be, have been wrestling with. Anyway, Peter took with him, uh, rather, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant, exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them, brighter than any neon sign. And Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he did not know what to answer, for they had become terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of heaven, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. This location, is a, as I mentioned before, is a beautiful area. And most scholars, and I, I agree with them, believe that this took place on Mount Hermon. Not the retreat center in California, but the high mountain peak in southern Lebanon, which is very similar to Mount Hood. It's 9,400 feet high at its peak, snow-capped for most of the year, and it's just a very beautiful mountain. When we were living in Jordan, there were a number of times we had to go to Cyprus. Cyprus is an island country in the middle of the Mediterranean, and you couldn't just fly straight to Cyprus because there was this little country called Israel in the middle, officially at a state of war with Jordan. So the pilot would take us up north to Syria and hang a left there and then over to uh, Cyprus. And I would always try to get on the left side of the plane. You know why? Because on the left side of the plane, you get this beautiful view of Mount, Mount Hermon. And it would just be incredible. You look down, and I'd be thinking, now, were Jesus and the disciples there or here? But somewhere on that Mount Hermon, you know, they were there. And uh, this, Jesus gives them this beautiful, magnificent, glorious mountaintop experience because it was going to have to take them through a lot of junk in the coming days. Well, what happened? Luke's account tells us that Jesus wants to pray through the evening, but the disciples fall asleep. Where have we seen that before? Uh, you know, they probably said a few, bless the rest of the disciples, and, and just crashed out. Moses and Elijah come and join Jesus, and they're meeting evidently through the evening, and they're transfigured. And the, probably in the early morning hours of the next day, Peter, James, and John wake up. And, you know, the light in the, in the early morning is the most beautiful of the day. The colors are so bright, and 
And here's this scene before them. You know, they're rubbing their eyes and thinking, wait, I need to wake up here. <laughs> Still dreaming. But it, the, the very, they were very much awake. And they're just blown away by what they see. Um, I mean, imagine. And then Peter is so, so startled by this, says in verse 5, and Peter answered. You know, find anywhere in the text where anybody asked Peter a question. But never at a loss for word, Peter answers and comes up with this because he's just babbling. He doesn't know what to say. And then this voice comes from heaven, the voice of God, not distant like they had heard at the River Jordan, but up close and personal, kind of like, okay, everybody, listen up. And they're just, they're thrown to the ground by that. Oh, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> See what happens when you... <laughs> But Matthew tells us that they were so terrified they fell to the ground. Just absolutely, you know, scared to death. So they're sitting there on the ground, shaking, trembling, eating dirt. And I I imagine that the whole week went through their minds. The events of Jesus' declaration of the cross and their rebuke and the, the hard teachings about having to live the rest of their lives working for his purposes and suffering and all that that entails. And now this which they couldn't even begin to integrate into their thinking. It was just rough. So was this the fulfillment of verse 1, that some of you would see the fulfillment of the kingdom? I believe it is. I believe it's fairly clear. That for a, a moment, there's this momentary interjection of the kingdom of God into man's history, man's time and space. And so for a moment, God just sort of rips back the veil of these mere three dimensions of, of our normal earthly life it says, here, look at this. I want to show you something. And what's the point? Jesus is just saying, look, yes, you're going to have to suffer. Yes, it's going to be tough. But the things I'm talking about, heaven and the kingdom of God and everything else is extremely very real. Don't think it's pie in the sky. Here it is. Take a look. It's just around the corner. And yes, in this life, we're going to have to deny ourselves. We're not going to live for this life, but we're going to live for the next life. And it's going to be hard. But it's just this far away. And it's just this real. And that's what Jesus was saying to them. And this life is just like a little time trial. It's nothing for us, you and me, to get worked up over. So let's live for him. Well, how do these things apply? As I said before, we shouldn't just be willing to lay down our life for Jesus. You know, some people imagine that, you know, one day there's going to be this dramatic choice of dying for Jesus, which will probably never really happen. Like the communists are going to take over and put a gun to your head. Are you a believer in Jesus? And, uh, but that, in fact, daily, weekly, monthly, we need to be making decisions, choosing to not do what we want to do, but to do what he wants me to do instead. Not to accomplish what on my agenda, but to accomplish his purposes for me and for the world. Um, and and that's, you know, that's a, a commitment we need to make now. Henry Blackaby, an author, says this. Many of us want God to speak to us and give us an assignment. However, we are not very interested in making any major adjustments in our lives. Biblically, this is impossible. Every time God spoke to people in the scripture about something he wanted to do through them, major adjustments were necessary. They had to adjust their lives to God. Once the adjustments were made, God accomplished his purposes through those he called. Until you are ready to make any adjustment necessary to follow and obey what God has said, 
you will be of little use to God. Jesus is calling us to follow him wholeheartedly without reservation. Does this mean that everybody or that you should leave your job and and go to the mission field, perhaps where the needs are, are much greater and people have not heard the gospel and there are no churches? Well, maybe. Uh, for some, you know, really, God may be calling you to think about that. But for most, God is probably wanting us to apply these things right here in Boise. Perhaps God is saying, you need to give more time, more energy, more focus, more priority to your walk with me. More priority in your growth. And that would be a great application for today. Others, maybe the Lord is speaking to you that he wants you to get more involved in the work of the church. You know, any church from the first century till today requires a lot of work for us to grow together and minister to one another, whether it be teaching a Sunday school class, serving as an elder, setting up the chairs, working in the office, one-on-one ministry of encouragement or, or exhortation or all kinds of things. And why would anyone want to persist in these things year after year after year unless it was to obey these things? I mean, would you want to teach a third grade Sunday school class just because it feels good? I mean, maybe some would, but I don't think I would. But maybe if the Lord, you know, said, look, I know you don't want to do it, but this is what I want you to do, <laughs> you know. And uh, so it's very much these things fall out of these motivations and these principles. Perhaps from someone else, the application this morning is uh, God wants you to be more vocal, more bold at work for the gospel, not being ashamed of identification with him, but rather reaching out in love and concern for those who don't know that they can have eternal life. There may be implications in all of this with our, our financial stewardship, as we all have to grapple with. Uh, perhaps other, he's saying to others, there needs to be a greater willingness to roll up your sleeves and get involved in meeting the needs of other people uh, and not just yourself or myself. Um, and put some of these things, some of your own plans on hold. He may be saying that he wants you and your spouse to pray daily for your neighborhood or for your family. Or, you know, there's, we can go on and on and on about the possible ramifications and and applications for your life. And, and I can't say what how this applies in your life, and you don't need me to say how this applies in your life. Um, but for most of us, God has probably already put his finger on specific things in our life. For others, it may be staying in a marriage that has long since uh, lost its payback for you personally, but you know God wants you to stick in there and, and uphold righteousness in that family. Well, as I was thinking the other day, these are hard things, but and some people may have some very legitimate hesitations. Some may think, you know, this is great, but it's too vague. It's pie in the sky. Kingdom of God, okay, but where is it? Um, we have a missionary family from Indonesia we just saw in Pasadena recently. They were coming back from their first term in the field. And their son is standing out on the street at Los Angeles International Airport. And he's looking around, and he's real upset. This isn't America. This can't be America. And they say, Johnny, what's the matter? You know, No, this isn't America. What do you mean there's this isn't America? Of course this is America. No, it isn't. There's trees. There's cars. There's road. And evidently they had told him, in a few days we're going to get on the plane and go up in the sky to America. And his whole picture was wrong. And, and, and what is your worldview? I mean, what is, what is really substantial, if I were to ask you that? Is it this life, the things you can touch and feel, your experience, the years that you know that are in front of you? Or is it the kingdom of God? Is it the things that we see on the pages of Scripture? And so we need to ask the Lord to help us. Lord, make these things more real to us. Someone else might feel, 
I can sense the Lord saying this to me, and, and maybe I should do this and this, but it's too risky. Dan, I've got a career. I've got, I've got children. Or this might happen if I pursue the Lord's path for me, and it, it, it's just too risky. A number of years ago, when, when we were in Jordan, Monica's family were terrified that we were going to be held hostage. Now, never mind that there was no precedence in all of Jordan's history for anybody being held hostage, but they were terrified of it because, after all, it was Middle East. So uh, one day we were reading Newsweek magazine, and there was a hostage taking in Atlanta, Georgia, in a prison uh, there. And there was a picture there, and we thought, that couldn't be Uncle Ray, could it? Sure enough, <laughs> Monica's Uncle Ray was taken hostage in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, he was let out. In fact, he was actually instrumental in, in things coming to a good conclusion there. Uh, more tragically, we've got some very good friends who've been serving the Lord for about five years now in northern Iraq among the Kurds. And it is a dangerous place. It is a dangerous ministry. And they've had a very difficult time dealing with that emotionally. And there have been some people assassinated, uh, people that they've known there. But just a month ago, they came back to the States for a funeral Bob's sister was murdered in North Carolina at a five-star hotel. Random gang violence. And I'm not saying that she wasn't following the Lord and Bob was. I'm not saying that at all. I don't even know her situation. But the point is, we don't know where risk is. We don't really know what path is going to be most dangerous for us. Except I can promise you that the safest place on earth is in the center of God's will. And the most dangerous place for you is to stray outside of what you know he wants you to do. Going on, somebody else might say, oh, I, can't, I can't cope with the hardships. If I, again, I, I maybe think the Lord would want me to do this or that or, or pursue this path, but I know there's, it's going to be things I can't cope with. It's going to be tough. I, this would happen, and I can't deal with that. When we first went out to Egypt in 1984, we took an apartment on the seventh floor of the noisiest street on the continent of Africa, I'm convinced. And, uh, you know, a friend had actually taken a stopwatch in time. What is the maximum amount of time in between horns honking? Because Egyptians drive primarily with their horn. You put one hand here on the, on the wheel and the other hand on the horn. Uh, if your horn goes out, just park it, you know, because, you know, you don't need that. Brake, that goes out, no problem, just keep going, but you need a horn. So, I don't, if you know me, you know that I'm finicky. I like things tidy, tranquil. And then I can and I can work and, and deal with things, but you know here was my the office I needed to study Arabic right on this road and it was rough, but you know in about a month's time I noticed this wasn't bothering me anymore, and I didn't just get used to it, but I'm sure it was the Lord's grace getting me through that and over that obstacle. And the scriptures are complete with with times how God is saying, if you go forward, I'll remove the, the obstacles, I'll help you through it, and that's what happened there, and that's what will happen. In your life as well. Others may think, okay, again, good principle, I see it, but there's no point in me getting all worked up over some sort of radical obedience for Christ because my own Christian life is too weak. My own testimony uh, would be too poor for the Lord. And it, and it may be that the first application is, is in dealing with certain things in, in your life or my life. But God doesn't use perfect Christians. Never has, never will. Why? There aren't any. <laughs> um, throughout history, God has used weak and fragile and frail and inconsistent sinners 
to accomplish his purposes. Again, our first year in Egypt, we had this young man who was continually coming around our apartment. He was an Egyptian Muslim fellow. And he was a friend. We would play basketball and stuff. But he would come around quite a bit and visit us. And at times, it seemed he was close to accepting the Lord. But then he would back away. Eventually, he went to the States to complete his education, passed the, uh, his license for stockbroker, and now is a very successful stockbroker on Wall Street. Uh, and he became a Christian, a true believer, when he went to the, eventually when he came to the States. And now he's uh, a, a leader and teaches Bible studies in his church there in Manhattan. And he's married. And uh, um, he told me once, when, after he'd, he'd called us, he tracked us down by phone when we were on furlough um, last time or the time before, and said, i become a believer. And says, you know, one of the things that impacted my thinking was the quality of your marriage and family life. And I'm like, come again? In 1984, our marriage was the pits. I mean, it it was the low point for us. And yet somehow, by the grace of God, he saw some light, some salt, and it made a change, it made some kind of difference in him. And, And God can use you. Don't, don't forget, God is not looking for perfect people. God is looking for obedient people. In Acts 13.22, he says, After he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Was David perfect? He was an adulterer. He was guilty of, of murder. A lot of his political machinations, they, they sort of smelled, frankly. If you read some, it's just kind of suspect. And yet, what did God see in David? God saw this man was committed to do his will. That's what God is looking for in you and me. Well, again, this message is not intended to be just some heavy burden about devotion to Christ. But rather, the other half of the message is crucial. That discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, is a positive message. Jesus is not standing over us with a finger, you know, you know, get committed. You know, give up these stupid things and, and get committed. But rather, Jesus is calling you into a closer relationship with him. As someone has said, we're, we're not as close to Jesus as we want to be. We're as close to him as we choose to be. And Jesus is saying that the future, the reality of the kingdom of God, of heaven of all the rewards and all the things in Scripture, they're real. He's drawing us closer and closer to himself. Well, remember the question at the beginning. Beginning. How can you have a successful life? To be happy, to be fulfilled, to be everything that, that the Lord wants you to be. Well, the answer is, Jesus says, you give it up. A little story, let me close with. A man was wandering through the desert. And he was about to die. His throat was parched. He was dying of thirst. And he comes across this old shack. And he goes inside and sits down, trying to get some relief from the shade. And he looks over and notices there's an old pump. Old water pump. Manual kind, you know. that. So he gives it a go. Nothing. Absolutely dry. He looks over and there's a jug with a note attached. And the note says this. There's water in this jug. Use it to prime the pump. Pour all into the pump. And then you'll have unlimited amount of water. And by the way, please fill up the jug when you're finished. So he pulls the cork open. And sure enough, there's water. 
and it's old and it's you know stale and hot but he's thinking I could drink the water now and probably live another day or two or I can pour it into the pump and maybe have unlimited cool fresh water what would you have done well he pours it into the into the pump and starts going nothing nothing all this water starts gushing out everything that he had hoped for and the Lord is saying the same thing to us. He wants us to give us everything we need to have to find life, as he promises here in verse 35, to find life. But first, we have to give it up all away first. Let's pray. Lord, we take a look at these sayings of yours and we confess they're confusing and they're certainly very challenging to think that we could live this way. But Lord, let us first repent that we haven't denied ourselves and taken up our crosses and really live for you the way we should have. Lord, all of us need to confess that, I'm sure. And Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness and your grace and that now you want to take us from here and we pray that you would make these things all the more real, Lord. And show us specifically, Lord, how this should apply in each and every life. But especially, Lord, I pray for myself and for everyone here that you would give us a heart to obey, even though it might be scary, even though it might seem like we would have a crummy life if we do these things. But rather, Lord, you are there to enable us to find life as we give it up for you. In Jesus' name we pray.